Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mindy Yuri. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Our guest this evening on FuturePod is Kieran Murrahy. Can you be an Irish leprechaun and semi-sensible futurist at the same time? Truth be told, Kieran has followed a reasonably orthodox path into and through the futures field over the last 11 or so years. Kieran had spent 15 or so years working in state government in community regeneration initiatives. He'd reached a point in his life where he wanted to learn and study, but MBA seemed a trifle common. He signed up for MSF, Master of Strategic Foresight, and realised that the wacky kids had been left in charge. He oscillated between outright confusion and delighting in the unlearning of futures. He took the plunge six years ago and started a consultancy, Foresight Lane. Foresight Lane has specialised in strategy, futures thinking, innovation and service design across the education, health and community sectors. Over that time, Foresight Lane has done some decent work and maintained a solid yet unobtrusive persona. They have, however, also spent that time learning the craft and working out where they can best offer value. 2019 marks a period of getting a little bolder and Kieran and the Foresight Lane team are working on two initiatives, building a community where the creative folk in education, health and community can collaborate, innovate and disrupt, and establishing Crazy Ideas College, a social enterprise equipping young people with the skills, confidence and connections to do crazy good in the world. Welcome to FuturePod, Kieran. Thanks, Mandy. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're very keen to hear your story. Can you tell us about where and how you bumped into Futures and Foresight? Yeah, thanks, Mindy. So I might just recap uh, on, I guess, the vocational experience that set me up or primed me to maybe hear the calling of Futures and then, um, yeah, then work into kind of what that first initial introduction into Futures felt like. So uh as you mentioned, I'd worked in state government and a lot of that work had been in uh, communities that were marginalised or experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage uh, and where it was about bringing the community together with government, uh, service providers, business to start to understand what the community would like uh, the community to look like and feel like and the experience of living in that community, what that might like be like in 10 years time or thereabouts. So they were, they were fairly long-term projects and so I was really lucky to come in on one of the pilot projects, probably in my mid-twenties with a public service training background, you know, understood the bureaucracy quite well and found myself out in a lounge room in this community and we were trying to figure out what the hell this program was meant to be like. And it was, mm. it was probably, uh, in terms of experiences, both for my life but also vocationally, it was definitely a game changer because it enabled me to flip on my head, I think, the whole thinking about the relationship between government and community and individuals and where stewardship lies and where good action lies and where the imagining of futures lies, all of that. So it was a, it was a wonderful experience. So yeah, found myself in the community. Uh, there was, as I mentioned, a, a lot of learning to be done, both individually and I think as a, as a program. And also, as we were discovering what worked and what didn't, um, it brought forth a lot of critique around whose values were being espoused in the futures visions that were being brought forth and how do we organise as society, how do we organise as community, what are those underpinning values or assumptions that are made that help us think what the future might look like and 
also what actions we need to take to bring those futures about. So whilst it was an incredibly exciting program to be involved in, I was involved for 10 years, sort of over three different programs, uh, it also did require a lot of deep reflection at various points in time. And uh, as I say, some of those questions around whose vision was mm. actually being enacted in these programs, uh, where stewardship lay, where the responsibility for individuals lay in terms of their own trajectory and their own lives versus how the systems and how the services uh, help set them up to live the life that they would like to. Uh, I think there was definitely a lot of overlaying of middle-class values uh, in the program. And also, we had some pretty interesting moments in those programs where there was resident calling us to account on the fact that a lot of money was being spent on these programs and really was that going into the benefit of the community in terms of all the service providers were getting money, you know, the people who were employed on the program didn't live in the community. So there was a lot of a lot of things where we were being disrupted in our own thinking as well. And programs were being overlaid with pretty bureaucratic structures, you know, so things that made sense to the bureaucracy about how to organise them, so committees, and that really about managing the parts. So there was a sense of do bureaucratic structures really help us do this community regeneration work well? And also probably a recognition that sometimes when we're looking at the deficits in these communities, we're not recognising the wisdom and assets and the different ways of thinking that might actually be called upon to help us find new paths forward that maybe the bureaucratic overlay kind of at some times doesn't necessarily always authorise or legitimise those views. So uh, where the wisdom lay was an interesting thread for us to be continually thinking through. And again, that sense of whether bureaucratic structures work or whether we need to find new models of enabling communities to grow and develop into their own visions and individuals within those communities to do it. So lots of questions. There was a lot of goodwill, some really good work done. As I say, I think one of the primary lessons was that often in bureaucracies, we treat the service providers and government as the experts. And the big flip was community as the experts. And so, you know, there's always a lot of rhetoric in those types of programs around making it bottom up. And that's not necessarily how a program like that will work. But I think there are definitely some things that you want to shift around where we where we think expertise lay and where we think the the knowledge lay for sort of crafting new new futures and new possibilities lay so uh, that was a wonderful experience to get me thinking that all the things that I thought about how the world worked may not be as sound as I initially thought they were and you know once you start that inquiry I guess you know you're on your way and uh, you start looking so it starts with the question so I reached a point in my life where it was well I want to study I'm not quite sure what I think I'd read a futures book. It was very technology focused. So it was probably the vision I was bringing in my head around futures. Just scanning across the various options and then obviously found the Master of Strategic Foresight online at the time. Thought it looked interesting. The mode of delivery in terms of the blocks worked well for me because I was traveling from the country and went to an information night. Thought I knew what I was getting myself in for and of course I didn't. <laughs> so turning up at that first session was quite an experience and I think you mentioned in the the intro about it feeling like the wacky kids have been left in charge and I was reflecting on it today going that actually is what it <laughs> felt like uh, I came in mid-year and it was a it was a pretty uh, out there group that I walked into we had the fabulous Rowena Morrow who was facilitating it but you know within that first three days I think all of the topics that polite society wouldn't talk about had been discussed and so I knew I was somewhere different, um, but I also recall, I think it may have been in that first three-day block, Joe Voros doing a talk over the course of probably two and a half or three hours, he described all the way from the Big Bang to the need for humans to colonise planets and what that might look like. And I remember feeling so alive in that session, you know, my head was obviously splitting. I didn't understand it all, but it opened my eyes to think that we can start to try to understand the world or comprehend the world at that scale is quite magnificent. And whilst there was a lot of things that were kind of causing me confusion, it was compelling. Yeah, you know, I couldn't look away. And so, you know, I think pretty quickly I worked out it was a journey that I wanted to, to go on. Everybody else was probably in the same boat when you looked around the room, I imagine, Kieran. Yeah, I think we... Probably everyone who's been through the course knows that there are lots of incidents and episodes where people find things 
pretty challenging in it. So that's right. So I'm sure it's not an unfamiliar experience. Yeah, sure. So what was the effect on your work in the community? Was there a direct relevance there or how did that work? No, I think absolutely it did in that, particularly once we started using the frameworks, you know, I got more familiar with the frameworks that we were applying in futures. It gave me a great basis for critiquing. (laughs) So where in the past it might have been an intuition that something didn't quite feel right, I could apply a way of thinking that through that once the critique was done about hang on why are we doing it this way this is what I now see through this lens you can start to construct something new so I would say I I might have started futures three or four years into uh, my work in that space and absolutely it gave me a way to understand what was happening better and therefore a way to think differently about how we might organise ourselves and think differently about what sort of actions might actually be most effective. So I was really lucky because it was a fabulous program to be involved in because because we were out in community, we were disconnected from the bureaucracy in many ways and we were inventing how things were being done, particularly as a pilot project. And so, uh, you know, we were working across health, education, uh, safety, urban environment, all these all these various aspects. So you know, we had to take a systems view about how change gets affected. And so to have a program that enabled me, in a sense, to take a more effective systems view, systemic view, was really helpful. And I, I did most of my projects in some way, shape or form around the projects that I was working on to really help kind of land what I was learning in the classroom. Mm. Can you speak a little bit about some of the frameworks that you found particularly relevant or the authors, perhaps? You've spoken about some of the lecturers that you found stimulating. I was drawn pretty quickly to Integral Mm. um, and the journey of trying to understand Integral and getting into all of the books. That was, I I really enjoyed that. And Integral remains uh, a framework that uh, we still use uh, that kind of, inflects all of our work to some degree. And I think the best advice that we were given around frameworks in the course to hold them lightly, you know, there are lens on the world, but don't get caught up in them, uh, has been really sound and has enabled uh, me to dive into things like integral, which you can kind of get wrapped up into a degree and try and see the world continually through, through that framework to not just get caught there. So But Integral has been important. I've kind of been part of a community in Australia that's been looking at Integrals and doing some work, a program that Sean Esborn-Hagens ran and brought out to Australia. And I find his work really impressive in the Integral space. And so um, that's been nice to have that community of fellow people that are interested in that framework. So Hale's tools are just lovely. And I remember being utterly confused by uh, metaphors and CLA. But again, it was one of those frameworks that just felt as though it was going to be increasingly important in the work and that it was as much art as science. (laughs) And so it wasn't something that could just be, you know, you couldn't just click your brain into it. It needed, needed to just keep feeling into that and testing and working with a tool like CLA to to find a way into it in a way that we could apply now in the work that we do. And we use it in almost all of our work to some degree, even if we're not badging it as uh, causal layered analysis. Uh, and we've been really fortunate. I might talk a little later about this, but we brought Sahail into work on one of our projects because we just thought that was too good an opportunity to pass up. So uh, yeah, his, his work certainly influences everything that we do. I think the complex adaptive systems uh, and the systems uh, frameworks that we used have been really helpful and I was always drawn to the work or the writings of um, Jose Ramos as well and now I'm part of a his Mutant Futures community mm-hmm. that is kind of starting to build up and uh, so he's got models like the Futures Action uh, model that I think are, are really interesting too in terms of bringing together both pers- those personal callings around the change we want to contribute into the world and how mm-hmm. we connect them up to the ecosystems of change that exist already around that. So Jose's work certainly had a a pretty strong influence at various points in time as well. Mm. Kieran, when did you make the huge decision to start up your own business, your own consultancy? Was that partway through the study or that was after you finished? Uh, Yeah, I think that would have been six years ago. So I may have been either 
just finished or nearing finished. And I think I did my course over four or five years. So oftentimes I was doing two or three subjects a year. And that was actually worked out particularly well for me because it felt Mm -hmm. like I had the length of time to keep returning to futures and, you know, it didn't feel rushed in any way. So that really worked for me, but uh, I may well have been some crossover. Uh, But again, because of all of that priming of, you know, maybe some resistance to the bureaucracy, uh, feeling like it was time to go out and... You're saying that with a bit of a smile, Kieran. Well, I, lo- I, I, I also <laughs> love, you know, the experiences I got working for state government were absolutely, you know, remarkable. Yeah. And, um, I got to learn from community, but I also got to learn the wisdom of how government organises things. So, you know, that was an amazing gift and I loved my time there. Uh, but I think Futures kind of, you know, there's a lot of provocation in Futures works as well. And um, it probably gave me a little bit of confidence that, there were, there were also the frameworks and the ways of thinking about things differently that we could add some value in the marketplace. So I went out with a colleague about six years ago, um, Claire. She wasn't a futurist. And that's kind of been, I think, a thread that's moved through our business is the intersection of kind of some of the futures. But we've tended to have people from public, public service backgrounds, pretty grounded practitioners in as well so that we're trying to merge that really pragmatic view about how change happens in the sectors we work with with the possibilities that emerge uh, when you're able to use the futures lens to to think outside of the conventional orthodox assumptions and habits and patterns so yeah we went out six years ago we really didn't know whether we'd make it work so there was two objectives basically that we set ourselves we didn't over engineer it we said if we survive that's magnificent and the second was if we get to do interesting projects with interesting people that would be an absolute bonus and so we uh, found ourselves as often happens I'm sure for many people when they first go out consulting they're people that we had previously worked with in our roles in the state government brought us in to do pieces of work we were so grateful for every job and we saw them as a gift. We treated them as learning labs rather than delivering, just delivering a product. We said, this is an opportunity to learn. And we overinvested in a sense to kind of make sure that um, we didn't see it as an overinvestment because we were actually investing in our own professional development every time we do a job. And we also, alongside that, the thing that we decided to do, which was looking back was probably braver than I might have even been now is when we were getting jobs we were using it as an opportunity to invest in bringing really good people in to work with us again to see it as a professional development experience to work live on projects which is where the real learning kind of happens from a consulting craft I think with good people and in fields that could add value and stretch us so uh, one of the first jobs that we did do which was in uh, really working with an assembly of sort of 17 health services across a particular geography of imagining new uh, possibilities, uh, what their future might look like, but then starting to set up an innovation agenda around that, was we brought Sahail in to do a two-day workshop. And I remember uh, sitting there, and this is where I was very fortunate with Claire kind of con- being very supportive of us looking for bringing the futures in where we could, saying, oh, maybe we we just email Sahail. I'm sure we won't hear back from him, but uh, I remember, you know, within an hour and a half, I think, of sending the email, he said, sure, I'm in. So so that was an incredible wow. opportunity to kind of uh, do the planning with Sahail, see him deliver that workshop. And we were fortunate kind of off the back end of that to have several meals with him and mm-hmm. just have the opportunity to kind of have him talk about his approach and in his own gentle, subtle way, point us in the right direction about how we might find our own way into it. So there was no doubt seeing Sahail's work gave us some great shortcuts to how we might work with groups in these ways. But also Sahail was really good in a couple of respects. A couple of his key points I recall was when he's bringing his future stuff up and kind of doing some provocations and, you know, the, the dynamics in the room can be moving all over the place and Sahail's obviously incredibly calm through all of that. And, you know, I remember him saying, don't worry, even when it's not perfect, it's perfect. And I think that was a key learning about how to hold a space for a group when you're doing things like futures, how you allow for the the various dynamics that need to ultimately come up to do that and to remain calm and hold that space and um, with skill to allow good outcomes to occur off even sometimes the back of dysfunctional exercises. Uh, That was fabulous. And, And also his advice to 
find how you be yourself in this space. So, you know, everyone's going to have their own take. Everyone's got their own background and threads and talents and emphasis that they can bring into the future space and to relax enough to find that, to say it might take some time, but, you know, you're going to have to find your own way in. Don't try and be a carbon copy of anyone else. Uh, you know, even then being able to apply that where we're using futures frameworks and maybe modifying them to meet people where they're at. So being prepared mm. to do that, to say that we don't have to, because a framework in futures has been designed a particular way, we can modify it where it's useful to do that for the people that we're working with. So uh, working with Sahail was, was amazing. And we also did some work with Adam Jorlin. We trialled some work with him, who's doing a graduate as well as a program. who's over in West Australia doing great work. He was trialling a game at the time, so we invested in that. And also, uh, we I think one of the things that we recognise, and I'll, I'll maybe refer, talk to a little bit later, is the intersection of foresight as a great opening up the possibility space and really the thinking, but that oftentimes what we also needed was the processes for the doing part of it. And so design, I've been fortunate enough to do the first subject of foresight and design with Bridget Engelner-Ubry. I loved that course and I loved mm. that that gave us a framework for action and a process for action. So we brought a good design studio in Melbourne that we've ended up collaborating with over the last six years, them to come into some of our processes so that we could learn how they were doing things mm. and then pick up from them. So I think that was, in hindsight, a really smart move because mm. uh, it helped us learn the craft, not just by muddling our own way through, a bit of that, but then also learning from people who were doing particular aspects really really well and mm. learning how we could apply them and then uh, the other key thing I think that stood us in good stead was obviously every time a client comes to you and talks about work they believe that there's a particular problem they're trying to solve and I think really taking the time to get the value proposition of the piece of work clear up front we spent a lot of time with that on projects early days learning how to spot that learning what was going on then Obviously, the more and more of those you get, and if you're really focusing on where the true value lay in a lay in a project, you can see the patterns <laughs> that are emerging in your various projects, so it gets quicker and quicker. But being able to reframe the brief in a way and check back with the client to go, here's what we're hearing, here's what we think true value for you might be in a process, here's the process we think we could enact to kind of deliver on that value, and then really focusing all the way through on the project around delivering that value, mm. however we got there but not worrying too much about hours. Obviously, you know, in time you get better and better at being able to quickly move through to delivering value. But for us, maintaining a clear focus on finding where the value lay and then delivering on that has, I think, stood us in good stead um, mm. and enabled us to get the repeat work and to get the referrals because it's, it's quite clear what you're delivering. Great, Kieran. Can you speak a little bit more about some of the frameworks that you've road tested in front of community in this time when you were building your business? What were some of the models that you were finding were really working for you? Yeah, so the, the ones that I've indicated around integral framework, uh, causal layered analysis and the futures triangle, Sahails, and also design. Uh, so they're, they all feature prominently in our work. But two that didn't uh, we didn't come across really until probably post my involvement with the course. The first is the Three Horizons framework that Bill Sharp's written the book on. And uh, why that's really useful is just the simplicity with which you can overlay a change story on that. And I remember way back when I was doing the Master's of Strategic Foresight, Peter Hayward gave me some great advice one day. If you've got a complex story to tell, tell it simply. And if you've got a simple story to tell, then you can tell it in a complex way. And that really stuck with me. And as a way of us thinking about how we meet people where they're at, so how we bring futures in a way that is useful, productive, constructive, but isn't disconnected from their everyday realities. And so uh, the Three Horizons has proved kind of like a bit of a light bulb moment, I think, for us around that, but also for our clients. And so I'll just talk briefly about how we kind of use it and frame it and what we find the response then from our clients tends to be is that obviously the the three horizons around uh, status quo business as usual all the habits patterns structures that enable the orthodoxy to continue and that 
it's really valuable. We need our business as usual for us to be able to structure up our organisations, our own lives, society. So saying that's all well and good, but you know, business as usual is very powerful and its job isn't to actually bring change in, its job in a sense is to sustain itself and become more efficient. So saying that's a part of the puzzle. Horizon 3 is, is competing visions of the future. And oftentimes we'll say, don't worry about that because <laughs> that's, too, that's too far out there. But just know that the Horizon 1 today is very different than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And everyone can kind of you know, understand that. So you know, Horizon 1 is going to shift. And the really interesting space to think about is Horizon 2, the transition zone from where we are now to where we might be in a period of time, both for your organisation or your sector, uh, generally when we're working with clients. And the distinction between Horizon 2 minus as what you might call kind of adaptation to the status quo or uh, I've heard it referred to as like the progressive status quo. So saying that's a really part of the change agenda as well, where we're innovating at the margins, but we're not kind of challenging the orthodoxy too strongly. And we talk about, you know, Bill Sharp talks about Horizon 1 capture. And so we can talk to people about the whirlpool of Horizon 1 and how you can have ideas that might be far out, uh, but the need to understand that business as usual status quo will oftentimes kind of filter an idea back towards something that looks quite conventional. And so then being able to make quite a clear distinction between Horizon 2 minus and Horizon 2 plus, as Horizon 2 plus is that zone of disruption, true experimentation, you know, it's a zone of discovery, and that oftentimes a way of identifying whether something is truly over in this Horizon 2 plus space is whether it's flipping the conventions in Horizon 1 on its head. And so then being able to tell a really simple story of we need to allow for both of these. So you can show the organisations that have paid no attention to Horizon 2 plus and then have been completely blindsided. So being able to suggest if we're doing strategy work or innovation work, it provides a very simple framework for saying uh, particularly in the strategy space, your reality is you need to live in two worlds. So it's not innovate or die, because particularly for organisations who are funded by government, so many of the policy frameworks and the funding arrangements are still going to uh, mean that they need to operate very well with their core business within the existing arrangements. Even if all the rhetoric in a particular field might be around an emerging kind of way of operating, recognising all these structures are going to hold them in place to a degree. And so saying that's okay. You know, you can't afford to totally take your eye off that ball. And so what it also then does is alleviates the fear of the people in the room, uh, you know, and because you obviously got many different dynamics in a board or in a leadership group in an organisation that uh, you're not going to be developing a strategy that's totally disconnected from their realities. And so those who care about the finances can get a sense that we're going to pay attention to that. And uh, But then also saying, but if you don't actually authorise some work in the innovation space, you know, someone else is going to come and invite potentially over the top of you. And you're not building your future pathways to prosperity and, you know, viability. Because oftentimes, you know, a lot of these organisations are also grappling with, well, we'll, do we have a future? So that enables us to kind of legitimise both the having a strategic story about the, the existing and starting to craft a strategic story about their best hopes for the emerging future. And saying, if that's our best hopes for the emerging future, then we need to actually put some actions in place that start to bring that to life. So uh, it's a wonderful framework in that regard, as I say, because it validates all the various perspectives. And we'll talk about how often these perspectives feel as though they're in opposition, but that, that actually each of them brings value. Uh, you know, So Horizon 1 is really good at understanding what needs to endure. So, you know, even if you're then talking into Sahail's three, you know, uh, futures triangle, you know, the part of what's the part of history that we want to bring with us, even as change occurs, again, brings people who are more kind of in that space, allows them a spot in the strategic journey that we're developing as well. So uh, we will then, uh, in, from a strategy point of view, we, we say you're living in two worlds, so you need a dual operating strategy. So you've got a strategy for uh, your conventional kind of arrangements, your core business there, and a strategy for bringing your emerging future to life. And uh, so that's, that's wonderful there. And then John Cotter's work around the dual operating model and how you start to organise for the experimentation in the Horizon 2 Plus space 
has been really useful to say that if we're going to truly innovate over here in the Horizon 2 Plus space, uh, we need different processes and structures and systems than Horizon 1. Uh, the Horizon 1 wants predictability, you know, and it wants, if we're going to do a new piece of work in Horizon 1, in government they're very used to building up a, a business case for a pilot project for $400,000 over two years or whatever it happens to be, and moving them more towards, uh, you know, lean experiments in the Horizon 2 Plus space, saying we actually don't know what the outcomes will be here. We can start to uh, design some principles for the sorts of ex what e the experiments that we'll um, undertake here, uh, but we need to have a totally different way of actually experimenting here than what we would traditionally do in Horizon 1. So we start to say, so we need to build the space for that to happen. And so in a strategy, we will have um, within the Horizon 2 Plus, the innovation missions and the connection between the, uh, the, the traditional bureaucracy that might exist in an organisation and those who are ready to innovate and bring the emerging future to life is saying that that experimentation needs to be around the things that matter to Horizon 1. So if you're going to go back for resources and if you're going to go back for authorization into Horizon 1, uh, you need to make sure you're working on things that they care about and experimenting around things you care about. So setting the innovation missions up in a way that gives them a chance of actually landing and being supported then becomes really important as well. I think that that work emerged, the, the work around innovation emerged for us kind of in identifying the gap at the back end of a lot of our strategy work in that uh, we would do the work around creating the visions of the the emerging future that they wanted to step into and it was really hard to find where to hand them off to in a sense to actually do that experimentation so there's some fabulous innovation companies around like inventium and we've connected up with them at various points in time uh, but the other thing that we know is many of these organizations in the sectors we're working with they're not used to funding they're used to funding strategies they're used to funding service design they're not really used to funding innovation experimentation and so we, we, what we then worked out we needed to do was start to build some and test some processes, some frameworks we could offer that would enable them to say yes to actually building the, the innovation and experimentation space out within their organisation. So uh, I think what's been occurring for us too is where we've identified where our work might do a certain thing, but then, you know, we, we're leaving people to some degree... Uh, enlivened about bringing a new future to life but not necessarily any way to actually do that and so then starting to work out well maybe we need to build that out and so that's where we've started to over the last three years experiment with our own processes and offerings that we can uh, bring into that innovation space which is essentially building the experiments that talk to And there's a question that we like to ask our guests, and that is to have a crack at giving us a bit of a picture of what you're seeing emerging in the future. Choose your own horizon, 30, yeah. 30 years. Yeah, well, I'll keep this fairly specific to the work that we're doing and the where I think the most interesting prospects for change are. And I think uh, to some degree, it's around where stewardship sits in society, around in the sectors we work in. So where's stewardship for education? Where's responsibility for how we organise our educational models sit, both at a collective level and then even for an individual who's crafting their own way through that journey, whether that's a young person or an adult. And so I think how that whole process unfolds over the next 10 to 15 years is going to be absolutely fascinating across all of those traditional institutions and big service sectors that we've set up in society are to say, uh, are we going to say that we still say government's best placed to actually manage the resources, oversee them, coordinate how services are rolled out? Or are we going to start to move more towards models where stewardship sits with both at an individual and an individual level in terms of their own um, ability to work out how their resources are spent, whether that's in disability or education or elsewhere, but also at a collective level about how, how we organise those structures. The metaphor that 
tends to work reasonably well with our clients about thinking about how we might bring a, some coherence to understanding what the big shifts are is uh, thinking about as a, a shift from organising uh, those sectors like machines to moving across to organising as an ecosystem and how they look different. And, uh, and that whilst we haven't really built the ecosystemic models out yet, that's where, from our perspective, a lot of the really interesting work lay. So it's difficult, I think, at this point in time to predict exactly how that will play out because there's no doubt there's going to be a lot of resistance as you know, institutions and our conventional models increasingly get challenged or we find disruptive models that are coming in and circumventing even their ability to actually do what they need to do. There's a lot of tension and turmoil and disruption and some of that's going to be pretty messy and difficult for communities and people obviously working in these spaces. So it's easy enough to critique what's wrong, where the, where the machine metaphor, the machine way of organising is kind of looking a bit tired, is no longer serving the needs of the people it's there to provide services to. It's no longer serving the needs necessarily of the organisations and the people working in the organisations. Uh, and also it's not serving the needs of the funders at times. And I think people can recognise that and just the story of, look, it's done a really good job. You know, it's served us well, but let's recognise that over time we, we actually need to find another way. That there's an appetite, I think, with a lot of our clients in these sectors to say we want to find another way. We want to be constructive about building out the new. So uh, as I say, most of the innovation and experimentation that we do is about helping them understand how they can work in ways, organise themselves in ways that might be more consistent with uh, how an ecosystem might work. And, you know, we do work to really ground that. The way that we do that is show them the difference between a machine you know, manage the parts. We're only kind of measuring a few different points or objectives uh, where it's, it's quite often closed and we're protecting the information, where it's you or I, so the zero-sum game, and moving across to an ecosystem where it's about flow, starting to look at abundance, starting to look at I don't need to own things, I just need to make sure the resources need to get to where they need to at a particular point in time. But the thing that really strikes people when we talk about that metaphor is suggesting that the move from you or I to, and you know, this is obviously a pretty harsh generalisation of the machine metaphor, but it's something that certainly helps people kind of understand it, is like you or I, there's discrete resources that we need to kind of compete over to uh, you and I. And suggesting that you and I isn't just, I want you to thrive because I'm a good person, I love it when people are, are doing well, to actually in a network, in an ecosystem, when you thrive, I've got a better chance of thriving. So this sense of actually our chances of success is shared and how do we actually collaborate in, in ways that bring productive partnerships to bear where we can find the opportunities to win in collaboration. Because I think organisations in our sectors have been pushed to do a lot of collaboration and partnerships. And we've done a lot of work with the collaborative models and almost inevitably their great challenge is people are dropping out because of a lack of purpose, a lack of clarity, a lack of understanding about what the value of um, having a structure of partnerships and collaboration is, that people intuitively want to partner, but that it hasn't been purposeful enough. And so I think this is going to be the really interesting challenge too as we move towards these networked models is how we bring coherence and purpose to them. And certainly if you look at innovation networks, they thrive when there is that clear value exchange. So this isn't just about working together. You know, this is about kind of having structures that are decentralised, but obviously the trick of bringing some sense of purpose and leadership, where does leadership sit and all of those are going to be fascinating questions, I think, when you start to look at it from an, what's education look like in that space? What's health look like in that space? Um, then obviously, you know, people are, People are talking a lot about the disruptions of uh, technology as, you know, maybe the lens through which they're mm. looking at the future. Mm. And, you know, the future of work is everywhere at the moment and it's all about, you know, disruption through technology. But I think, you know, most of the, obviously, people in the futures field know that's a part of the story, but it's not the whole uh, story. So I think people are understanding that technology has the potential to disrupt so I think the fascinating thing that we're starting to see that hasn't really emerged yet is ultimately the conversation that we might start to have about what does 
a good life look like? <laughs> what do good lives look like? So what are the multiple perspectives on what a good life actually looks like? And then how do we actually start to arrange ourselves to enable as many people as possible to experience a good life? You know, a simple example of that might be where our labour markets are changing in a way that the employment models may not be set up for the same levels of security. And so we've got the emergence of things like the gig economy, which are prompting some young people still at the margins to start to, I guess, think very differently about how they build a vocational model that speaks more towards the life they want to live than just recreating a model of, I've got to find a specific job that, you know, gives me the security to buy a home and all these various things. So I think the intersection of us starting to build new visions of what good lives look like into the future and how we then need to organise our institutions and big service models to help deliver on those new models of what a good life looks like is where the real fascinating conversation takes place. And I think an ecosystemic models that start to move stewardship over increasingly to community are going to be well placed to kind of play a role in that. Kieran, every futurist, I think, comes across this at some point. The question about what is a futurist? How do you answer that question? I don't know if I do, to be mm. honest. I think most of our work, we're not couching oftentimes as futures work. It's got a strong imprint all the way through it. And we we do a lot of futures workshops. But I don't know if I've got a good answer to that. And if I ever give anyone a good answer, and I can't recall being asked recently, so... <laughs> I'll say maybe it's not even that important to have a good answer to that for me currently in terms of what I'm able to describe to others. But I think through our work, the way we think about futures is across three aspects. And the first is really helping us build a a really broad and rich understanding around the strategic context within which an organisation exists. And what futures brings in is both understanding the current, the historic, and also the push factors that are there. So what are the patterns currents of change that are starting to have implications for a business, for example, in a strategy. So part one is futures can do a really good job at giving you a much richer view of all the various factors uh, that you might need to be thinking about as an organisation as you embark on um, imagining and working towards a new future. And integral, even models like integral, you know, really help in that space in developing frameworks and models that to take um, various factors into account. So giving a rich picture of the context, an enhanced picture of the context, understanding the factors of change and the implications and opportunities that are in that. I think for the beauty of futures to really help people imagine their best hopes for the future in that context. If this is our context, what can we imagine? What's possible? And we, again, we use the three horizons as a way of stretching people out into imagining new possibilities. So we will get people who perhaps have an appetite for Horizon 2 Plus to work together to craft their vision of the future and we'll have our conventional vision of the future. So again, saying there's these multiple futures at play, but futures has a great way, I think, of bringing some coherent, compelling, um, really hopeful visions for the future. So understand the context. Futures can help you do that. Futures can help you kind of really craft a vision that excites you and compels you forward, compels you to act. And then I think this is where we then have merged that with And I still think this is good futures work, but uh, the doing. So the experimentation that brings those futures to life. And so I would would say futures helps you understand your context, uh, what's important, what's not, helps you build a really hopeful view of the future and helps you design and introduce experiments that bring that future to life. Kieran, you've told us that for 2019, you've got a couple of really interesting programs on the way, building communities for innovation and establishing Crazy Ideas College. Can you just tell us a little bit about this and why this is a focus of your work? Yeah, so I'll start with the innovation ecosystem uh, work that we want to start to increasingly move into with Foresight Lane. And I think it's the next 
iteration of bringing more sophistication to our work and understanding where the real opportunity for impact might be in that you know we did the strategy work and the futures work which you can create the vision then saying well we need to do innovation labs <laughs> in, in organizations or across multiple organizations in health in a region for example uh, and so we'll do those discrete processes and then saying well the gap at the end of that uh, with the, the organizations and sectors we're working with there's not really anyone holding the innovation ecosystem together or let's talk about as community might be a nicer language for the rest of the conversation so the community of innovators in that space the scaffolding is not there to hold that community together and so for us we're really interested in starting to understand what's the value of building that community out and so what we intend to do is to start to go to some of the clients where we've got good relationships where they've got a clear agenda for change. So as an example, this would be in education. We're collaborating with an organisation who very clearly has an agenda about they've got a whole host of schools that are signing up to move towards models that are more in line with the education revolution. So we would go and partner with them to say, let's work with your schools to run these innovation processes so they can start to bring that to life. And let's start to connect that up. So we will go to where some of the, the people who are leading change in specific areas and look to collaborate with them. Uh, in a sense, putting in plug-in processes that they can, where we can get moving, where we can train people up in the, who have the appetite you know, the 15, 20% or whatever it is, the people who have the appetite might be in the adult ed space or whatever that really want to kind of get in and build some more uh, transformative models where we build their capacity to innovate. But through that process, we actually have a whole host of experiments that get developed and delivered. So we start to connect all of those up in a sense so that uh, people can learn off each other. I think the other thing that we're interesting thing that uh, we're finding is that when all of these pieces of work are discrete, because obviously we're not the only people out there working with organisations who are trying to experiment and innovate, when they're discrete, it can be a little bit disheartening for people because the experiments often, whilst they're speaking to a really big disruptive vision, can be quite humble. And so when you do an experiment that's humble, oftentimes it's hard to see how that's really contributing to the greater effort of change. So I think even psychologically, people being able to recognise that they're part of a bigger community that's building this change out and they're connected to it will be of value. And the other thing that we can start to do then, do the learning at scale. So what are we seeing when we start to look at where the common barriers are, where the common successes are? Uh, how do we start to bring resources into the community to actually look at some of the real leverage points for change where there's some commonality? Uh, how do we advocate for change in policy where we're starting to see those system level lessons being identified in the community? So we have no doubt at the moment that um, whether it's us or someone, it doesn't matter, there's an opportunity to kind of connect up uh, the work that's being done across these sectors uh, where they are working towards a common vision, really. And we want to we want to kind of get, you know, we'd love to see a thousand experiments across health education community sectors you know in the next eight to ten years that uh, are connected up and that help us all learn about what innovation looks like and where as a community we can kind of start to support the efforts of each other so uh, that's what we're really keen to do there uh, we're a fair way off making that happen but I think we've been sitting with is that what we want to do and we've decided yes that's what we want to do so that's half the battle isn't it is is just kind of getting clear on look that's the thing we'll pursue now and we'll see whether we can make that work and we'll have our own experiments to start to build that out uh, the other aspect that we're focusing on is crazy ideas college which is something that emerged five years ago for us where part of my role in state government at one point in time was seeing all the submissions that came in for funding for youth consulting work and I think it's fair to say a lot of goodwill a lot of good intentions but fairly uninspiring most of the submissions and so it was part of that well are we going to sit here and complain about how young people are being engaged in the world or are we going to try and develop something that changes that model and so we've been tinkering with this really at the margins <laughs> for five years and there's been times where I've been really wishing it would go away and kind of die a slow death or maybe a quick death um, and it's refused to so it's kind of bugged me all the way through and we've had various projects kind of float up that where we've um, where we've been asked to come and do it and so over that period of time we've kind of learnt where we can bring this into the market we've learned how to work with 
young people through innovation design processes, how to connect those innovation efforts up to the real world challenges that exist in their communities or at a societal level. And so that they're, you know, we take them all the way from discovering and exploring about the issues that are presented through to generating ideas, prototyping. So really using all the design innovation methodologies, building experiments out that they're pitching to the decision makers in whether it's in the community. So we've had councils who have brought us in to do it. We've had Headspace who've brought us in to do it around mental health and young people. And we've had um, schools that have brought us in to do it as part of their school curriculum. So we've decided it's either time to be in or out, to go big or go home with that. And so uh, this year we're spending a lot of effort in seeing whether there actually is something in this. And again, our vision isn't just to develop plug-in products that people can use, but is again to build the ecosystem of young people refashioning, reshaping, remaking the world. And so that's the longer term goal. We're collaborating again with some good organisations around that. Uh, I think that's part of the keys. And if you, you want to work on things that have got a bold vision, you need good partners. And so, you know, that's what we've worked. We've played the long game on a few of those of finding good partners who can kind of maybe give us a, a more confidence that this is that these, these aspirations we've got, we can actually bring them to life. Uh, so this year, we're in the midst of hopefully organising a roadshow across four states with Crazy Ideas College. And as I say, we've reached 1,800 students, probably around 20 or so times in a heap of distant, different contexts. And yeah, we get, we're really trying to scale it up and ramp it up this year with, with some vision that we want to hand that over young people. So I've got a young designer who's now part of our team, who's uh, leading a lot of the efforts in this space. And we'll be connecting up with young people to basically build keep building out the, the future versions and with the aim that we're exploring what sort of ownership and leadership models what it might need to look like to actually hand it over to to young people so yeah we can see lots of scope for really disrupting <laughs> education and a whole host of things but first of all we've got to have products that plug in with where the market's at so i think that's one of the things that we've learned too is maybe having a vision for where things can be in five years and really understanding where you can plug into where the market is now with the view that if you you're clear on what that vision might be the path there is going to look completely different than what we might envisage right now but give yourself a shot get yourself in the game work with the orthodoxy to start to bring that in so uh, you know we're able to go to schools now and say with a fair bit of confidence that you know we can take your students through a, an eight-week design and innovation process uh, where they'll be pitching to decision makers around wow. uh, things that they want to things that they care about things that they want to change so fantastic You've got a lot of work to do. You've done a lot of work. It's been really inspiring to hear about all the all the areas that you're moving into, have moved into. It's been great, Kieran. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing all the aspects of your work. Congratulations and good luck. Yeah, thanks, Megan. It's been lots of fun. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now.